Hi, and welcome to Security Explained. I'm Chris Grayson. I'm Drew Porter. And I'm Logan Lamb. We're coming to you every two weeks with tips and tricks on how to protect yourself and your loved ones out there on the internet and in real life. Today, we're going to be talking about the future of security. Not the future 100 years from now, when the robots have all taken over and we're ingesting our Amazon electrolyte slurry while plugged into Facebook VR goggles selling our body heat to Google, but rather the next five to 10 years. We'll point out some trends that have been growing over the past decade that we expect to continue and highlight some areas that are ripe for innovation. We hope you enjoy this episode on FutureSec. So we went ahead and kind of broke down the various... I guess like improvements and trends that we that we've seen into a number of different buckets that are kind of common dividing lines in modern security programs. And so the first thing that we're going to talk about is uh, application security. And application security is a pretty broad term, but generally speaking, it's talking about security that applies at the application layer within companies that are selling some form of application. So you can think like if you're on social media, uh, the application security layer would be that for Facebook, it's all of the software written by Facebook that powers the app and powers uh, their backend. The same thing with like Snapchat. If you're on, you know, anytime they're using a Google service, whether it's Google Maps or G Suite or, um, you know, Google Docs, where it, it's specifically AppSec is in reference to the custom software that has been built to power these different services. So um, it's a pretty interesting space, especially because it's different for every company, right? Because when it's your own custom software, you have your own custom risk profile. And so you can't usually just pull a book off the shelf and get like a de facto answer. It's like, here's exactly what you need to be doing in order to secure your stuff. It's it's something that requires kind of constant innovation and, and, and thinking. Uh, about the problem. So let's kick off with AppSec. Uh, Drew Logan, did either one of y'all want to want to start us off? What is going to happen in the future of AppSec? Well, before we started recording this episode, you guys made me aware of, um, I, I guess it's a new project from GitHub called Copilot, where it's an AI that will just automatically generate code um, for developers and I imagine that having a negative impact for application security, <laughs> <laughs> at least in its current in its current form. Um, so this is this is a project from OpenAI that has analyzed you know heaps and heaps of data from GitHub, and from from what I from the the clips that I've seen, I have not used it firsthand yet. But from the clips that I've seen, you effectively type out your code and you type out the name of a function and then the AI just fills out the function for you. So if it's like, oh yes, retrieve user from database is the name of the function. It'll actually like craft all of the SQL, which is the you know structured query language uh, code that you then run against the database to get that data out. And in the security community, there have been some cases where folks point out, it's like they're, they're just testing to see what sort of code OpenAI generates. Um, and for certain languages dealing with certain problems, the code that is generated is blatantly insecure. But I'm not sure that that's good. Like that's, that feels to me more like a V zero problem, right? Like, okay, it's hard enough to get AI to write code that works. It's just going to be another step to make it write code that is some level of secure. So, uh, I agree with you on that with it being a V zero problem and, I mean, the project is absolutely incredible. Yep, um, yep. But, you know, if at some point in the future, Copilot is able to write code that just has zero faults, then I think the attack target will just be moved to Copilot. <laughs> yeah, well, in that case, if you've ever seen Terminator 2, I think I think Skynet is what we call that. <laughs> and I'll be, I'll be out of a job. <laughs> <laughs> what, what if, what if, this co-pilot is just teaching us that SQL injection is actually the best way to write database queries. 
Oh, we had it wrong all these years. <laughs> I, yep, that's I right. Kinda, yeah, yeah. If it's being optimized for like, we need to allow you to have access to the data. It's like, yo, why are you only giving them this data? Give them all the data. They that's can right. figure it out from there. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Just, I, I that's, mean. That's reasonable. And again, I'm, I'm much more inclined to, if it's going to keep opening up security holes, I, I will be gainfully employed, hopefully. Um, but I do think, you know, Kind of across the board, we're going to talk about some various technologies. And I, I think this is really the only time we're going to explicitly be calling out AI. But as somebody that has been working in technology for a bit, machine learning is commoditized at this point. So mm-hmm. being able the, the speed with which you can ramp up on machine learning and like take some data, train a model, and then use that model to actually predict something with some reliability I've seen the tooling for it now. It's nuts. It's absolutely nuts with how how much easier it is to do today. So a lot of the stuff that we're going to be talking about, machine learning is powering a lot of decisions behind these various pieces of technology, whether or not it's the main kind of like line item. But machine learning is absolutely here to stay and it is it is growing in importance on a you know pretty fast clip. Um, uh, this this isn't exactly related to AppSec, but I just want to stick this in there because I don't know if we have a section for it. Um, talking about AI being commoditized, uh, what I immediately think of is the deep fake meme websites. Ooh. Like like that technology mm. is incredible, and it's yep. so easy now. Yep. It I I wish I knew more about machine learning. Like that's actually my current project. Um, they're one of, one of my current projects is learning more about machine learning and just how much I, how, how can I apply it? Because I, like, this is a slight tangent, but I'd love to start using machine learning for more art. Like I want to become a digital artist and then, yeah, anyway, that's, that's a whole other thing. So I'm just going to stop there. Going to sell uh, your NFTs. You more. better believe it, dude. You yeah, better yeah, believe man. it. <laughs> <laughs> They'll be under a, a pseudonym. You won't be able to tell it's me. Um, no. Totes not maybe. Chris. Is yeah, that your exactly. soda name? Yeah, yeah definitely not Chris. <laughs> Brisk. <laughs> Brisk. <laughs> nah, that would be a copyright claim from the, the tea company. Um, so, so, AI, yep, cool. GitHub's uh, co-pilot program, super cool. Like, uh, it's one of the coolest examples of modern application of, of artificial intelligence that I know of, aside from like the deep, deep dreaming and, and deep fakes. Aside from that, on the AppSec level, one of the things that we've seen for a while, and, and I'm super happy with this trend continuing, and I think it will only continue to gain steam, is um, web technologies. So the vast majority of, of software is going to be API-based, API being application programming interface. You expose a bunch of endpoints that have functionality that run whenever you request them, and that allows remote parties to invoke them. So for instance, you know you have a mobile app, you're pressing buttons and things are happening. That's actually communicating with the server remotely. You know, back in the day, a lot of a lot of software was just running locally on your desktop or running locally on your laptop. It didn't have a significant component in the cloud. But now, all of the you know the vast majority of software is written such that there's some backend up in the cloud that's running all of this all of these processes. And that backend software, uh, really popular frameworks and technologies, you know, 10, 15 years ago, like PHP, like ASP.net. Um, there's these various, there's all sorts of different ways that you can write code that will work as backend software. Um, but there was this trend where you would have a web server that would expose a directory on your computer and you would just take script files and you would put them in that directory and then anybody that requested them via the web server, the code would then execute. And that was just like a standard pattern for how to build web applications is you just write script files, you drop them in a directory and then they're automatically exposed uh, via the web server. And I can't tell you the number of times that that artifact, that that mechanism for how code is even launched onto a production website is what got me in as a penetration tester of like, it, it's so it's so easy to build a foot gun when all you have to do to launch new code is drag and drop a file into a new folder. And modern web technologies are, you have to be much more intentional. I mean, like, a, I think a big thing with security is secure by default. So if you do the easiest thing or you do the standard thing to do, then by default, you're going to be secure. Those previous technologies, that wasn't the case. 
with these new technologies where you have to explicitly say, I want to expose this functionality, um, the intentionality of launching new code, I think it has been one of the biggest things that has made it harder to breach APIs um, just in general. And I think it's something that it's kind of an unsung hero. I, I don't hear very many people talking about it. So modern web technologies, you have to, you, you have to be much more intentional to launch new functionality, which means that unintended functionality most likely doesn't, they're more likely does not end up in your web presence. And that is, that is a huge boon to security. And, and we'll, we'll see that trend continue for sure. For sure. We'll also see the continuation of applications uh, moving strictly to, you know, browser base and, and app base, right? Mm-hmm. Long gone are the days of the thick apps. Not long gone yet, but they will be long gone for here, probably in the next 20 years, um, where everything will just be hosted on some cloud-based server and you'll just be pulling requests off of that. Even even the app itself won't be doing much computing on your device. They'll offload that as you know, widespread network infrastructure becomes faster and faster around the world. It just makes more sense, both from a business aspect, because now you can retain that data and use it for your own other evil purposes. Hopefully not evil, but... Tom and here is Drew's evil, if you haven't picked up on that yet. <laughs> <laughs> no, I was just, you know, I was just thinking... Just out our boy like, like that. Like Google <laughs> and Facebook, right? Like, do you think they're doing nice things with your data? No, probably they're doing, not, right? I plead the but fifth. They're doing legal things. They're, oh, <laughs> yeah. Oh, oh spicy. <laughs> That's all that matters. Sometimes, Are they? not even that. Are they? <laughs> yeah, but but just from a business perspective, having that data and being able to manipulate it and, and use it in different ways and leverage it in different ways. And then also, um, this will allow us to have, you know, thinner, lighter, faster devices on the mobile side, which is what people seem to care about. They want a big battery and a thin, light, fast device. So if you can solve both those problems at the same time, um, then that's what people are going to move to. And I don't necessarily think that's a bad thing. I think this is going to allow us to be much more flexible with our development and our innovation because now we don't have to worry about the processing power of a system locally. We can focus on what is delivered to the end user, mm-hmm. such as augmented reality, which I think is going to be huge. Uh, I mean, everyone thinks augmented reality is going to be huge. It's not just me. Um, but I think it's going to be huge in areas that focus around security as well, especially like physical security. Uh, to the point of thick clients being replaced with thin clients, um, clients that are running in the web browser. One of the really exciting things there is it allows um, functional- functionality that used to be uh, handled by the operating system to be pushed into the browser. Now with things like WebASM and um, newer technologies in the browser like uh, WebUSB, um, all of this functionality is pushed into the browser, which, uh, since that is a strict set of APIs, will, I think, make it easier to secure that functionality in the future. That's, a, that's an interesting take in that the fact of the matter is the, the browser is the new operating system. It um, is, yeah. And, and Chromebooks are the biggest testament to this, right? Where it's like you can get a piece of hardware from Google where like literally the operating system is the browser just because in today's day and age, it's like, what did you used to use your operating system for? You would use it for like Microsoft Office. So writing docs and stuff, all that's in the browser now. You would use it for, you know, I still use some Adobe software that uses a bunch of computing power. Um, from my understanding, there's plenty of stuff like that that is available in the browser. Like, like the fact of the matter is, the browser in this day and age is pretty close to feature parity with your your core operating system. So we will continue to see everything move into the browser, move into these mobile apps. The importance of the uh, core operating system itself will continue to diminish. It'll probably be mostly a user experience thing. Um, 
And the, the, the last thing that I want to say on the topic of application security is we're, we're seeing more and more technologies and companies be spun up around, can we enable non-engineers to build apps? And I'm kind of, I don't know how I feel about this. Um, <laughs> partially because I'm conflicted because it's like, wait, no, 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 that's my salary. Um, <laughs> but the other part just being that um, I, 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 as soon as you need to do something custom, as soon as you need to do something that nobody else does, I don't know how you get away from having an engineer. And it might be that these various technologies are just like, we're going to get you to that point. So we're going to enable you to have like a, you know, a, a blog and, and a shop like through Shopify and, and all this stuff that you can set up as a non-technical person. But as soon as you need to do something custom, like as soon as you want to be building a backend for a new mobile app or something like that, I don't know how we get away from having engineers. It might be that like this is where AI is able to infer intent from like, like the, the GitHub Copilot thing is able to infer intent from non-technical people and write the code that actually does the thing. Um, if that is the case, I think we end up in a place where software as a whole is less secure um, just because we don't have a human in the loop and inferring intent is kind of difficult. But it's, a, it's, it's hard to postulate about where AI goes because it could very well be that it explodes and, and, and you know, we can't even comprehend. Salt. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but, I, but I do think this trend of enabling non-technical people to build new apps is really cool. And in the cases where you're just doing something standard, I think that it will end up with our software being more secure as a whole. Just uh, I don't think it, you can fight the future. Like it, it's yeah. coming. And mm-hmm. I mean, really, if you look at early stage startups, that's it's not a lot, not very different from how they operate anyway. It's like, okay, we're trying to make a product. We're just going to piece it together as quickly as possible Yo. and see what happens. <laughs> Startup land. Yeah. <laughs> Startup land is, uh, uh, yeah, man, I cannot wait to watch how this whole Theranos lawsuit goes. Uh, but uh, back to topic. All right. App set closed. Next section. Corporate security. So, corporate security is commonly re- used to refer to kind of how you secure all of the assets that enable your day-to-day business on the employee side. So, for instance, all of your laptops, all of your mobile devices, all of your corporate infrastructure. So, your ability to send email. Maybe you're using a messaging app like Slack or HipChat or... Google, whatever their four versions of chat are now called. Um, But it's all these different technologies that are basically saying like, look, we are enabling you to do business, especially now in this new distributed world. um, And we're enabling you to do it in secure fashion. So when it comes to corporate security, Drew, Logan, is there anything that comes to mind for how you see the future going with corporate security? Uh, my mind immediately goes to Beyond Corp, and the idea with Beyond Corp is to push um, pretty much all of the functionality into the application layer and all of the trust into the application layer, so that uh, we're moving away from, say, being on a particular network, and because you're on that network, you are trusted, mm-hmm. and doing that removes entire classes of uh, vulnerabilities. Yeah, I'm a huge like fan. The, that I, I'm I've been a huge supporter of Beyond Corp model since I've learned about it. Just because it does fix a ton of problems that that Garden of Eden problem, which is that trust that you have when you're on a network, right? Cellular companies fall extreme victim to to that type of attack. Oh so yeah, I'll be excited when they move to Beyond Corp, and you know, this is supposed to be for the next five years, but that's probably going to take 200 years to move to for them. We can be hopeful. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I could, I could see that. The, for, for a little bit more context, Beyond Corp, from my understanding, there's a, the, the origins of Beyond Corp are, you know, over a decade ago, there was a major hack that hit Google and it was successful and it was from state actors. And, you know, there was remediation. Um, I don't know to to what extent that was successful. I imagine, you know, Google has a lot of really talented people. So, I imagine it was pretty successful. But 
in the kind of, you know, the debrief for what happened is basically like, look, we followed the book to a T on network security. Like we, we, we literally did everything right and it didn't work. The paradigm is broken. We need to find a way to prevent this from happening again. And from that conversation, Beyond Corp happened. In networking, you have something called the OSI model. And it's a model of kind of these different layers that stack on top of one another that enable networks to work. So like at the lowest level, you have protocols that actually talk about like electrons and how you're going to get the right amount of electrons from point A to point B in the right way so that the receiver can understand a signal. And then like a layer on top of that will be like, okay, well, how if we have a bunch of devices talking on the same network with these electrons, how do you back off? How do you address things correctly so they can all talk at the same time or something to that effect? And then you keep stacking these layers on top of each other. And then all the way up at the top, you have the application layer, which is effectively like application context, like how, you know, I have a mobile app, it needs to get this data, and it needs to be able to get it from over there. And, and, and it has a, this, this notion of like, user identity and all these different things. So, so the layer at which the data that we want to protect exists, is for the most part, all the way up at the top at the application layer. Yeah. And before beyond corp, the idea was, well, okay, so we have this data that exists at the top layer, which is layer seven, the application layer. Now, we want to employ access controls at layer three or layer four, which is like TCP IP. So we want to do like firewalls and network segmentation and all that stuff to prevent surreptitious access to layer seven assets. And it just doesn't like like just on its face it doesn't work granted when this when this was coming out the world was very different from from what it is now but this just doesn't work because in order to actually correctly apply access controls if identity is a notion that is only available at the application layer you can't reliably control access based on a layer 7 notion on a lower layer you just don't have that you don't have that ability right so like 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 I do not know who the authenticated party to this mobile application is or this, this mobile backend is at layer three. It's just not data that I. It's not the abstraction that I have understanding at. So Beyond Corp said, "Look, we need to build a world where you can have full access to like as far as the network layer is concerned, you have full access to everything. So it's like we can take all of our production servers and put them on the open internet because network access." doesn't mean anything in this context. All of the logic around how we're going to protect our assets is pushed up the stack into the application layer. And that is where we apply the access controls. And I'll tell you what, it freaking works. It works really well. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. it does. Um, it, you nailed it talking about um, you know the, the application layer having all of the context by the nature of being the highest abstraction really um uh, the analogy that i think of and this might get strained i don't know but uh, imagine you're at uh, a train crossing and i think of it as the lower levels are looking at the train schedule and saying oh a train's not going to come so then you go through the intersection and you get hit by a train Right. <laughs> and the application um, or the Beyond Corp model would be look at the schedule. There's no train coming. Look both ways. Stop. Listen. That sort of a thing. Just because you have that additional context. Hmm. Now I'm wondering if I'm going to get hit by a train. But just don't cross train tracks. That's the Beyond Corp model. No trains. No trains. <laughs> <laughs> but it, well, it, it really has. It, like, the, one of the areas that I specialize in is network penetration testing, which is from the open internet, can you get onto an internal corporate network? And once you're on an internal corporate network, what can you gain access to? And I'll tell you, there is a strong positive correlation between how old is your company and how big is your company and how screwed are you when I get onto your network? Like this has been the model where it's like, well, if you're on our internal corporate network, we trust you. The fact of the matter is it's really hard to secure a corporate network, especially at scale. So effectively, I would just get onto the corporate network and then just start scanning around and finding stuff. 
you'd have open file servers, you had all sorts of stuff because there's this model like, well, if you're on the corporate network, we trust you. And that's, yeah, bad, bad idea. So Beyond Core, every time that I am attacking an enterprise that is following the Beyond Corp model, the entire scope of what I'm focusing on and how I'm going to get in changes because the this, this same approaches just, just straight up don't work. Uh, I was going to say this is for a later section, but there is new technology that is leveraged today that helps manage the life cycle of machines that are brought up and torn down and put on networks. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And then Beyond Corp, you know, uses the model of zero trust and zero trust is the model of, you know, never, <laughs> never trust, always verify, right? And this is, I think, the part where some of us might disagree. I believe zero trust is a philosophy and not just a network security-based model. Um, I think zero trust can be applied to applications, uh, not just network level. That's myself. Logan and Chris may disagree. I, um, I think I think I like the ideas. I think beyond corporate zero trust referred to the same thing because I agree zero trust anywhere you have to prove it. It should always be the de facto standard. But these go these two notions go go hand in hand. Yeah, definitely. You can't have beyond corp. So this is the one thing you can't have beyond corp without zero trust. Um, absolutely not. That's fair. Um, and then the other part is. A lot of companies, I mean, zero trust is like a new, you know, not new. It's been used for years in security. We've been talking about it for a long time. But you will hear this term in the next two to three years used more and more and more and more and more by marketing teams. Oh, yeah. And it's just, and a lot of those groups that are using it, you know, I've looked at household name companies that are claiming to have, you know, zero trust implemented, all this great stuff, and they don't. Um, And it's a marketing term, and they're like, yeah, we're moving towards zero trust, you know, like our product now with 10% more zero trust. And it's just like, come on. (laughs) 10% (laughs) less trust. Wait, I thought you were at zero. But yes, zero divided by 10 is still zero. The marketing (laughs) team's going to go nuts with that. Two other things that I want to touch on in corporate security before we move on to one of my favorites, which is infrastructure security. Um, Multi-factor authentication has been growing, continues to grow. It's The market's pretty saturated right now. I mean, Duo Duo is another thing where whenever I was in an environment and I noticed like, oh, they have Duo everywhere. I was like, I have to completely change my tactics because it's just such a strong security control. But the whole notion of just as a standard... Entities need to provide multiple forms of I, of authentication in order for them to have access to something has really changed the name of the game. I anticipate that will that will continue to grow. Um, and then one of the things that really concerns me, though, is biometrics. Um, and and biometrics are like like we use it all the if you have an iPhone or you have an Android and you make use of the software that like will unlock your phone by looking at your face, you use biometrics. Whether it's your fingerprint, um, your retinas, uh, the way that you walk, the the various different things where it's it's an attribute about you, who you are, and they use that to authenticate. Um, it's really convenient, right? So I I, I actually use Clear, uh, which is a service that enables you to kind of skip lines in um, in airports and Clear up until recently, has been like, okay, cool, we just need your fingerprints. And to me, fingerprints, I don't like giving them up. But at the same time, in order for you to get my fingerprints, you need to have my consent. I need to put my hand on something in order for you to get them. And so I was like, cool, I'll just register my fingerprints. That's fine. And they keep trying to get me to register my retinas now. And apparently, they're changing their policy where you have to have both your retinas and your fingerprints registered. And I will fully drop that service as a result of that. Because I like retinas, once cameras get a little bit better, actually Drew probably knows whether or not this is a thing that exists today. But retinas, I don't have to give up my consent for you to get. All I have to do is accidentally look at a camera that you're running. And then if you know how to identify me based on my retinas, you will have identified me. Um, so I'm just, I'm, I'm super uncomfortable with, uh, with like a private entity having my retinas. Because if you look at what has recently happened in Afghanistan, 
where you know United States pulled out and apparently left behind a bunch of biometrics databases. The Taliban is now using those biometrics databases as a way to find people that supported uh, America. And when they find those people, bad things are happening. So biometrics are problematic from the standpoint that once one of your biometrics has been compromised, you can't replace it. If your password gets compromised, you can just change it. If your YubiKey uh, gets compromised, you can just change it. If your eyeballs get compromised... Get new you, eyeballs? You get, you, this is not Minority Report yet. Um, Dang it. But yeah, so it's it's just... I, I don't like biometrics that don't require consent. Um, I mean, I guess facial recognition is... It's really good right now. Um, I don't know if facial recognition is enough to uniquely identify you out of like, you know, millions and millions of other people. So that would be another one that is like, I just, just, just biometrics are gnarly. Um, I really don't recommend using them. And I like, people are going to keep using them. Like I, I, one of our friends um, recently sent a picture to the group of a storefront where all you had to do was put your palm above a reader and it would read your palm and that would be enough for you to pay. I think it was like an Amazon thing. And uh, so I think it's it was like, Amazon. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like, oh yeah, cool. I'm just going to pay with my palm. I'm I'm so uncomfortable with these. Like all it takes is a picture of something to identify you. Because um, the companies that are doing this are not going to have the right... They're not going to have the right stewardship over this stuff and it's going to get compromised and it's going to be used for nefarious means. So biometrics, I will try to fight the future on this one. It's not the right way. Uh, there are better ways to do this and all forms of authentication should require consent. Yeah, so there are companies that are pulling uh, fingerprints off of high-quality photos online right now. Like, that is their model for business is they're developing a ton of biometric databases uh, just from high-quality photos online, uh, which wow. scares the crap out of me. I just, like, who the hell makes these companies? Like, I get it. That's a cool technological problem. I'll tell you what. If if somebody's like, you need to write software to solve this problem, I would think from the standpoint of this is a challenging technical problem, this will be fun to work on. Totally. But there, yeah, just some people have no ethics and some uh, people have... Big paycheck, maybe. Yeah. 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 There are, there, there are plenty of companies that uh, folks in the security industry will kind of see going there as like doing their time. And you go and do your time to get a fat paycheck and then you get out. Um, we really need to change that mental model. <laughs> like you, 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 It should not be like, well, everybody else is doing it. So I'm going to change being... I'm going to exchange being a little unethical for a fat paycheck for a bit and then I'm going to stop because I'm a good person. Like, eh, you're not a good person. You're doing it anyways. Yeah, it's the, just the banality of evil. Yes, you know? yes. The commoditization <laughs> of like, well, there'll be an evil. I'll be evil. Like, this is how... It's a problem with the commons. Like, it, 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 it's not as if there's only a few big, bad, evil people. It's There's a lot of people that do a little bit of evil and in aggregate, you get a lot of evil out of it. Anyways, not really corporate security, but... Uh, we record <laughs> early in the morning and we start waxing philosophical. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes, I've been reflecting on all this recently. But that's... that's yeah. Uh, yeah, so, on the topic of corporate security, people are evil. Anyways, next topic. Um, uh, legitimately, next, next, next group that we want to talk about is infrastructure security. And so, you know, I, I, I talked about corporate infrastructure a second ago. So, let's not confuse this with that. Infrastructure security is typically in reference to, you know, we, we talked about the OSI model. We have the application layer, right? So, you have all that custom software that you wrote. It does all that custom stuff. Well, that, that software has to run on something and that software has to run at scale, right? It might be that, you know, in the middle of the night, the amount of throughput that you get is like 10% of the amount of throughput that you get in the middle of the day, right? Because more people are awake, they're using your app, they're using your service, whatever. So, your infrastructure might need to scale up and scale down. You don't just want to have a bunch of hardware sitting there, like costing you money doing nothing. Um, so, infrastructure security is in reference to all of your production 
infrastructure, not your corporate infrastructure. So not your laptop and your and your mobile phone and your ability to send email and stuff like that, but your production infrastructure of where's your code running? Where's the data being stored? Who has access to the data? Does it scale up? Does it scale down? How do you deploy new code? What does that look like? Who has it? You know, how do you control access to like your your continuous integration pipeline, stuff like that? So it's InfraSec is in reference to what sits underneath your application layer and enables your application layer to run effectively. Now, this is, I, of all the places that I have operated, InfraSec is, um, I, I'm kind of split between InfraSec and AppSec because they're both so interesting. Um, but InfraSec is just, you get to build really cool tooling um, when you're when you're working in the infrasec space, and, and some of the most talented security engineers I know uh, tend to tend to work in this in this level. I mean, what, one of the things that sticks out to me as a big boon in the world of infrasec is Terraform, and what Terraform is is a way that you can effectively write code or configuration files, and use that to control your infrastructure. So years ago, if you wanted a new machine running in the AWS cloud, you would log into AWS in the browser. You would go to EC2. You would say, create new instance. You would be like, oh, I want it to be this size with this much CPU and this much memory. And I want it to be running in this region. And it should be running Ubuntu on this version. And if you're doing all that, I'd be like, cool. Create that machine. Okay, cool. I need another one. And you'd go through the same process again. Oh, I need another one. I need the same process again. Oh, I need a domain name to point to this. Okay, go to AWS, go to Route 53, add the record, control it, whatever. And then it's like, oh, well, actually, I also use Cloudflare for this other thing. And I use um, you know Google Cloud Compute Platform for another. And, uh, and I have all of these dependencies. So managing your infrastructure was easily a full-time job just because it's effectively juggling a bunch of resources that exist in all these different cloud providers. Well, Terraform is a way that you can specify in code these resources. So you kind of like, you, you, you write all this stuff in Terraform and you just do go like Terraform plan, Terraform apply, and it will be like, cool, I need to spin up five instances of this type of machine in EC2, and then I'm going to take a domain name, I'm going to configure it in Cloudflare, I'm going to point it to the IP addresses that came back from that machine, I'm going to like enable this thing over here, enable that thing over there. And so it's a way that you can, you can quantify or, or explicitly list out here is my infrastructure in a way that now can be managed with standard code management systems. So for instance, if you need to have version history, you just have all of your Terraform docs in something like Git or SVN or Mercurial. So you can see over time the changes that have happened to your infrastructure. And then the last piece that I really like about Terraform is you can... So let's say that I've provisioned five machines in Terraform. I'm like, ah, I don't need all five of those anymore. So I change the number down to four and I do Terraform run and ter Terraform apply again. It will actually detect what does your infrastructure look like? what you need it to be like, and it will calculate the number of changes, the sequence of changes that need to be made to take the current state of your infrastructure into the desired state of your infrastructure. So it is a way to manage your infrastructure at scale across multiple like cloud hosting providers or cloud, you know, cloud environments and be able to reason about it in, a, in the same way that you reason about code. Um, and, and that in and of itself is the biggest boon to infrastructure security that I have witnessed in the past five decades and, and, and its adoption is continuing to grow. That's past five decades, past five years. Uh, <laughs> a, little, a little bit too long there. Uh, it will continue to grow. It is, it is becoming more and more pervasive. Like all the companies that I have joined recently, uh, like they're starting with it from square zero because like if you start with it, it's much easier to maintain. Because um, really the, one of the main things that results in compromise from an infrastructure standpoint is you left something running and forgot about it. You just, oh, yeah. your, your understanding of what your infrastructure is actually running decays over time and this stops that problem. Yeah, it's um, Terraform infrastructure as code. It's just incredible technology. And since it's code and since it's able to inspect the current state so easily, it makes auditing nearly trivial. 
And this goes hand in hand with another technology um, called Kubernetes. And Kubernetes is, so like I was saying before, oh, I need five instances in EC2. I'm going to have to figure out they need to be this beefy. They need to have this many CPUs, this amount of memory, all that stuff. Kubernetes enables you to abstract all of that away. You basically say, I'm going to take a bunch of machines. I'm going to stitch them together and I'm going to treat them as one big machine. So it'll be like, I'm going to take five machines that have 32 CPU cores each and let's say 200 gigs of memory, and I'm going to put them all together. So then my then Kubernetes sees this as, okay, you've got 160 cores and you have a, a terabyte of memory, and now it can just take pieces of software and run it in that environment as if it's just one, one piece of compute hardware. And... So Terraform plus Kubernetes taken together. So Terraform is the way that you basically organize all of your infrastructure. And then Kubernetes is how you stitch together all of, all of your computing power. And then you take your application software, you build it into a Docker image. You take that Docker image, you throw it in your Kubernetes environment. And now, like, yeah, infrastructure is code. You have effectively, you, you, you have a bunch of documents that you can just look at and be like, this is what my infrastructure is. And if it ever gets out of sync, it's going to come back into sync. And then on my application layer, it's not as if I have an Ubuntu machine over there, uh, you know, uh, Windows CE machine over here, uh, this machine over there, this machine over there. I have one machine that has all of my stuff running on it. Granted, I have to manage it scaling up and scaling down. But just the mental model of the complexity behind the infrastructure that is powering your application layer is so simplified. And, you know, it's, it's something that we, we touch on time and time again. Complexity is the enemy of security. So if you can get and any time that you can reduce complexity, you're more likely to be in a secure spot. And then Terraform taken together with Kubernetes drastically reduces the complexity of the infrastructure security problem. It does. Um, that's absolutely true. I think it's worth pointing out, though, that it does move the complexity into Terraform and Kubernetes. And since they are you know, well-maintained, funded projects, that's a better place for that complexity to lie. But yeah, um, it shifts the target. Yeah, that's sure. a that's a that that's a good way to put it. Yeah, um, it, it, it and it could very well be. I mean, I guess the good thing to call out there is, look, if there's a vulnerability in Kubernetes, it's going to affect a lot of a lot of a lot of enterprises, a lot of apps, a lot of a lot of software. Just because it's like you know, as these technologies grow in adoption, and we say, okay, cool, this is a nice kind of um, abstract black box that we don't have to look inside of could be that if there's a problem inside that black box then we all have that problem um, but to, to Logan's point I think the the you know, risk trade-off there with the folks that build and maintain kubernetes is is a is a good one I'll take that every day yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they're way better than me yep yeah um, since we're talking about future sec uh, what do you think comes after Terraform and Kubernetes? Like, oh. I don't know. Um, it's just it's something I think about sometimes. I I think Kubernetes will continue to be invested in, and like the the general theme is let's abstract away the infrastructure. So it could be that we move towards a model where all I really need to specify is here's how many cores I need, here's how much memory I need, and here's how I need things to be able to talk to each other securely, right? So it's like this service consumes that service, this service consumes that service. And that's the full amount of information that is input to something like Kubernetes. And it just takes care of everything else. Because that that is the common theme is like, let's abstract away the infrastructure problem for you. Like figure out like what, what is it that you need? What is it that you actually need? Well, for this service, I need it to be this powerful and to be able to scale up like that. And for this service, I need it to be able to this powerful scale up like this. And these, this is the way the services should talk to each other. And then Kubernetes just figures that out. But I don't like what it'd once be, we're at, oh, go for it. Oh, I was going to say it'd be really cool if we could come up with something like um, something we add on to maybe protobufs and gRPC that describes exactly the contracts between the services and then we can introspect that like graph and then it just automatically deploys the services yeah. it yep. intuits what you're trying to do 
I do like the idea of a better or a deeper integration between the application layer protocol, the means by which you get data from point A to point B, and the application layer itself. And I think gRPC and protobufs are a really good application there. And I'm sure, like, I think Kubernetes APIs are over gRPC um, by default. I could be wrong there. I just remember seeing a vulnerability report where it was like, oh, we found this protobuf stub. In, yeah, I'm in not sure. But um, yeah, I, I, I agree with that. And, and that's actually you know, the last bullet that we have here before we're going to jump to uh, Drew's favorite of physical security is um, you know, five years ago, corporate security, infrastructure security, application security, these were pretty unique and disparate um, domains that required their own level of expertise, their own solutions, their own approaches, all that. And one trend that we've seen that I think will will really pick up steam and is pretty beneficial from a security standpoint is the lines between these different divisions of security are continuing to blur. So we called Terraform, infrastructure is code. Yeah, you're defining your infrastructure, i.e. infrastructure layer, as in code like the application layer. And then beyond corp is, well, the network stack isn't really what we care about anymore. It's the application layer context is what we care about. And there's all these trends where it's like various tooling is useful for both like AppSec and CorpSec or like having a shared identity, like your corporate identity is actually valid in the application layer. Um, the lines between these different divisions are blurring to the benefit of security as a whole. And that makes a lot of sense to me because having disparate systems and disparate like kind of notions of things, it's typically the boundary where those things meet up that you run into security problems. So getting rid of the boundaries of like, oh, we have we have one notion of identity in the corporate world and one notion of identity in the application world. And, uh, and like, yeah, like our infrastructure does A, but then our application actually does stuff that doesn't really support it, whatever. Getting rid of all of those boundaries, all those kind of like friction layers is going to, you know, it, it's been a huge benefit. It will continue to be a benefit and it's going to continue being a trend. All right, Drew, are you ready to school us? On physical security? Well, it's uh, it's not going to be much of a schooling. It's going to be implementing this newer tech that we're using today. Just physical security is 15 years behind everything else, right? So, what you expect physical security to have today, uh, it will have in 15 years. Uh, with that, you know, in, in the corporate world, cyber and physical are being shoved underneath the same umbrella, which is good. Um, I am a big supporter of that in itself. Like cybersecurity, multi-factor authentication is going to be used in physical security. It's already being used by companies um, such as uh, JP Morgan Chase, uh, Goldman Sachs. Um, Apple is also doing this. Um, and this is including, you know, having your cell phone and, uh, it being used to, as part of your identity. So you're always transmitting a Bluetooth signal. And then when you get close enough to a door, um, you throw up your cell phone to an NFC reader and it will say, yep, Hey, these two, uh, these two signals are coming from the same general area. This is the person and uh, we're going to let them in. And then they're going to tie in surveillance into that, which is going to do facial recognition while to add a extra layer of security. And then on that, they're just going to skip the uh, having a uh, token altogether and just start scanning you via retinal scans and how you walk your gait. And that is really the next big phase of physical security is doing active retinal scans always because the cameras are good enough to where we can just do that and we can do it for hundreds of people um, within seconds. Monitor how you walk and that will be used in combination with AI to also develop a threat profile on you in your office that day. So 
If you're walking more aggressively, you might have a counselor come and talk to you, say, how are you doing? You seem tense today, Um, which is something some companies are already doing. So there is no happy ending for physical security. It just gets more dystopian. <laughs> this is good. I'm glad that we always end with uh, Drew the Downer. Downer Drew. We need a new name. Yeah, Downer Drew is good. Double D. <laughs> I, it, it, it's, it's just, you know, it's just the more and more you look at security and, and where it's going in the world of physical security, the more dystopian it gets. And people are wanting it like they are freely electing to have this type of model and uh it's crazy i mean we we see it in in asia already um i've personally been able to see some of these systems work in person and it is I, i remember thinking many years ago there is no more hiding like People are like, oh, we'll wear IR glasses. And it's like, nope, saw a fix for that. Um, like, it it just goes downhill if, if when it comes to, uh, you know, the my, my hopeful outlook for privacy and physical security. Well. <laughs> cool. Well, I'm going to go back to bed then and cry myself to sleep. Thank you, Drew. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So, on that bombshell, now that we're all depressed, uh, we'll go into the three takeaways for today's episode. One, application security, corporate security, and infrastructure security are all continuing to merge together to the benefit of security posture overall. Two, improved understanding of identity is a growing undercurrent across all aspects of modern security. And three, physical security is an area that isn't changing as much or as quickly, but is looking pretty dystopian as things stand now. Things have really changed over the past five years in the world of security, and mostly for the better. Enterprises and individuals are largely in a better place with respect to security than they were a short number of years ago, and we expect those trends to continue. Older enterprises will continue to struggle to adapt, which is a potential boon for innovation as newer companies don't have to deal with legacy technology security. We'll have a follow-up episode where we talk about the future of security and some of the other areas we didn't touch on today. But for now, we hope you enjoyed this episode on FutureSec. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Security Explained. If you enjoyed listening, we'd love to hear from you. We're always looking for new topics that our audience finds interesting, and you might be able to pick our next show. Feel free to reach out via social media or give us a rating on your listening platform to let us know how we're doing. You can find us on the web at securityexplained.fm or on Twitter at secexplained. Thanks again, and until next time, stay safe. Stay safe.